I'd like to welcome everyone this morning to Sunday service here at Ananda Village. It's the end of Spiritual Renewal Week, and it has been a fabulous week and wonderful to have all of you here from so many different places throughout the country, maybe even throughout the world, and to share this time with you of deep the deep, the deep timeless truths of our Guru Paramhansa Yogananda and through his disciple Swami Kriyananda. I'd like to, and also welcome to all of the guests and visitors who happen to just be here for today. It's wonderful to have you here. I'd like to read now from Whispers, from Whispers, from Rays of the One Light, a book by Swami Kriyananda on the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible, showing the similarities between these great two two scriptures. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. In last week's reading, we saw that the great masters themselves counseled discretion in the dis- in the dissemination of truth. The counter-argument is sometimes made, but the Lord doesn't hide. He reveals his beauty in the sunsets, his tender sympathy in the rain, his wrath in the thunder, his restless energy in the brooks, his power in the sunlight. There are exoteric truths, and there are also esoteric truths. There is that which is revealed impersonally and left up to us to interpret such as the thunder and our perception of it as divine wrath, the rain and our perception of it as God's sympathy. But behind even God's most open expressions, there lies impenetrable mystery. The wind blows where it wills, said Jesus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Sri Krishna says in the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, By me the whole vast universe of things is spread abroad. By me the unmanifest. In me are all existences contained, not I in them. God's hidden reality cannot be understood by the reasoning faculty. India's Shankya philosophy states frankly, Ishwar Ashidda, God is not provable. A willingness to seek the underlying reality behind appearances is essential for those who would know God. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Uh, but my name is Naiswami Pranabha and this is Naiswami Parvati. And I was thinking uh, this past week, I think all of us felt a sweet touch in our hearts from the experiences that we had this week. But also we probably felt great power in really what was coming through. And it is this combination of that sweet touch and that great power 
that really is something we can take forth, you know, whether we remain here at Ananda Village or go off wherever we're going. It's very important. And not so much that we have that contained for ourselves, a little bubble for ourselves, but really it's that aura of that gift of that touch and that power that we really can give to the world, that as we go out and interface with all the people we're going to interface with, really feel that you have that ability, that touch to really connect with people, whether you say anything or not, whether you're obvious in what you're doing or just being a beacon of light in who you are. Really take that as your, your grace that can come into this world as you leave here or remain here. Either way, just really feel this is a gift that's been given to all of us, but let us shine with that gift into the world around us. I'd like to read to you from Yogananda's book of Prayer Demands, from Whispers from Eternity. I disconnected my awareness from the little garden plot of the senses and switched it to the vast territory of the infinite. The aurora, the aurora of my awareness spread like dancing waves of light in the aurora borealis and embraced thy cosmic wonderland. When thus I entered that vast panorama, my awareness no longer dulled by the opiate of sensory noises or blindfolded by the veil of mere appearances, I stood marveling before countless streams of radiant rushing thoughts rippling through millennia from long dead, still living, and yet to be born civilizations. All time, past, present, future, danced its infitude of rhythms on the stage of my all-embracing consciousness. On Monday this, of this past Spiritual Renewal Week, Jyotish um, called up one of the most touching and moving stories from the Mahabharata. And again, the Mahabharata is the great Indian epic that the Bhagavad Gita is a little slice of. But remember, it was the story of Arjuna and Duryodhana. And they had realized the battle was going to ensue, and everyone was choosing sides. And they both realized that, ah, Krishna. Krishna hasn't chosen signs. And so they both rushed to Krishna's palace, and Krishna is sleeping in his bedroom. And you recall what Jyotish said, that Duryodhana came in first and, with arrogance, placed himself right beside Krishna's head so that he could be there right away when Krishna awoke. And Arjuna, on the other hand, coming in right after Duryodhana, stood humbly at the, the end of the bed, the foot of the bed, with a sense of great respect and devotion to Krishna. And then you remember that Krishna opened his eyes and saw Arjuna. And then he said, oh, Duryodhana, you're here as well. What's going on? And, and it's, he said, well, there's two of you, and so I want to give each a choice. And one choice is that uh, you will receive all my armies and my weapons, and they are vast, and the other will receive just me. And the condition of having me is, I will not even lift a finger to fight in the battle. And then he says to Arjuna, because I saw you first, you can choose first. And this is the meaning of the phrase that we often have, which is written on some of the t-shirts that we have from years ago, that um, tata dharma, stata jaya, where there is adherence to dharma, there is victory. 
Victory happens immediately when we have that experience. And this is immediately the choice of Arjuna, without hesitation, with deep reverence and devotion. He says, I choose you, my Lord. And Duryana, of course, as Jyotish expressed, was very, very happy, jumping up and down with glee that he gets to get the army that he wanted to have from the beginning. But there's a layer of this story that isn't often said often, isn't often shared. Again, it's a layer of this that's, it, that brings in another perspective that's there, but we don't necessarily look at it, in that Krishna is the divine. And Krishna is in the world. Krishna is the ruler of a kingdom. He has vast armies. And it's very interesting to pay attention to that. As I said, often that's overlooked, that there is this part. We see it in the background. But it's very helpful to tune into it, and especially in regards to today's reading, that the Lord is not separate from creation. There really is no veil between the divine and this creation of the divine. Because the creation is just an outflow, as we've heard this week, from that divine consciousness. But it's not wholly separate. It's just an expression of it. And really what we see is that Arjuna choosing with that devotion of the Lord without hesitation. That, and with the Lord saying, I will be with you, but I'm not going to play in the battle itself outwardly. I'm going to move through you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to hold the reins on the chariot of the five steeds of the senses. That I'm going to really help you tune into what's really happening on the level that you and everyone else, because Arjuna represents every man devotee, that we all appreciate that fulfillment will only come through the Lord, no matter how appealing the other side looks, that if we get this, if we get that, that we will conquer and be fulfilled. It is always fleeting and always out there beyond our reach. Well, there's another story in the Mahabharata that involves the character Karna. Now, Karna is a very interesting character in the Mahabharata. And he's a half-brother to the Pandavas, to Arjuna and his brothers. And I won't go into that story, because that's a fascinating story of why he's a half-brother. I mean, read the Mahabharata. Um, um, you know, I remember going down to Mount Washington, you know, of Yogananda's shrine in, in Los Angeles. And this was a long time ago, maybe 25, 30 years ago, I can't remember. But uh, you can tour the ground floor. You don't necessarily ever get access to the bedroom upstairs, sometimes you do, but downstairs is, is deep with vibration. And there's a library room, and I think there's the painting of, from his brother, Sananda, Yogananda's brother, of, uh, of Yogananda with Anandamoy Ma. I think that's the one that's there. But there's library, and there's very few things in library, but there's a copy of the Mahabharata. And it's about as long between that pole and that pole. That's the Mahabharata in full. It's huge. Because remember, someone was relating about um, the, uh, the TV set of, I think Jyotish Deva talking about this, of the Mahabharata. Well, I think that series was 48 one-hour episodes. 
or two-hour episodes. I mean, we, I remember we, we saw it in, uh, in a store with Indian produce and videos in Dallas one time, and it went on and on. So the Mahabharata is, is vast. But, so read a condensed version to get to the story that I'm telling you about with Karna. But, so Karna is a half-brother, and it's said that he is the strongest warrior, not the best warrior, but the strongest warrior on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, the battlefield within ourselves. And remember, everyone has to choose to be in this battle on one side or the other. And Karna represents the inclination to seek human happiness. And that's why he's considered such a powerful warrior. But he sides on the forces of delusion and materialism, not with his brothers, his half-brothers. Isn't that interesting? That the strongest warrior, the inclination to seek human happiness, is on the forces of delusion. That's a fascinating thing to keep in mind, by the way, every moment of every day. Because the, the, that desire to find our fulfillment through the human happiness will always be disappointing. Or it may seem like it's giving us a touch of something that's pseudo-fulfilling. But it's pseudo. It means it's not the real thing and it will pass. And as we carry on that emphasis of seeking human happiness, what tends to happen with our energy and then our magnetism is that we seek more and more out there to get that happiness. We're more strung out away from our center, away from what will really give us the sense of fullness. And it's something that we can pay attention to. It's just not a nice philosophy. It's a very practical tool to gauge in, in terms of introspection every day. At the end of the day, certainly, but even throughout the day. What is happening? What is driving me? What is pulling my efforts in life? Where am I going with this? And if we see that we're wanting that human experience of happiness, it's not that we need to negate that. We can actually enjoy that if we step back and open up to that it's not the experience that will give us fulfillment, but we can bring fulfillment through that experience. Different, isn't it? Because nothing in this world is separate from God. We can bring, if we're attuned more deeply, to bring that presence into those experiences that are human. The human experience isn't a flaw in and of itself that God created. It's the direction of our awareness within that human experience that's critical. If the human experience is taking us into the senses, remember the image of Krishna. So if you go into the guest services building in the lounge, there's a poster taken from this scene, which is one of the most prominent illustrations from the Mahabharata. Krishna and Arjuna are in the chariot, and Krishna has the whole of the reins to the five steeds. And those five steeds are the five senses. So it isn't as if the senses are obliterated. It's that we, Arjuna, representing all of us, 
gives the reins to the divine and then moves through the battlefield of life in that chariot. So there isn't that separation that we can tend to feel needs to happen, but it's whether we're seeking our fulfillment through human happiness or feeling that in the center of who we are, center everywhere, circumference nowhere, that we have that fulfillment that can enjoy everything, even through the senses, the experience of this creation from the divine. Because the other story from the Mahabharata that's important to remember to keep all this in, in balance is when the, when the Pandavas have been kind of pushed against the wall and their rightful kingdom isn't really within their grasp, the Duryodhana, King Material Desire, and his followers, his 99 siblings and all the f- army that he has, they're saying, no, the the rightful kingdom is not yours. You don't have a right to it. And we're going to take charge of it. Remember, this is the battlefield of Kurukshetra within our own selves. And so at one point, Duryodhana says, I'll tell you what, Pandavas, I'll give you a a fighting chance. Yudhisthira, who's the oldest brother, and remember we uh, in the class on the chakras on Wednesday, um, the the focus was on Yudhisthira was the, that powerful dynamic calmness and, and being in contentment. And so Duryodhana, King Material Desire, says, Aha, Yudhisthira, I'll give you a chance. Let's, let's gamble. And you can, you know, you can, get, you can get the kingdom. Let's go for it, right? And Yudhisthira says, this might be a possibility. And so this esoteric allegorical part here is that if we're calm without moving the energy forward dynamically, that calmness becomes passive and doesn't find the depth of fulfillment. It rests on its laurels and thinks, I'm safe. This won't touch me. And so Duryodhana being very sharp and keen, doesn't gamble with Yudhisthira himself. He has Uncle Shakuni. And Uncle Shakuni is not what we would call an upright person. (laughs) And the dice are loaded. And what this represents is that life, if we're reaching out to it from our center, things can work out, but if we're being pulled by the senses, if we're not giving the reins to the divine, to Krishna, to, to God, then they're controlling us. The senses will dominate. And what happens is that the dice are loaded when the senses dominate, when the ego is driving the experience of our lives. And so at first they're just rolling the dice for some things, and Yudhisthira loses, and he loses, and he loses, and I won't go into the story. Again, read the Mahabharata. Um, but he loses everything. Himself, his brothers, Drupadi, who represents Kundalini, everything is lost. Um, and I won't get into what follows, because that's another whole lesson. But this idea that respecting without being confined, that the dice are loaded. And in a sense, 
that's where we get this image, does God hide? Because we don't necessarily feel Him, know Him, can relate to Him always, because we maybe pull so far out into our ego, into our senses, that there isn't that natural relationship that our souls have. Our souls are covered up. We're not lost in that experience of being covered up, but we seem to be lost. You know, I was just thinking out of the blue this morning, uh, this quote, which I'll give you 10 points if you tell me afterwards where it comes from. Uh, not all who wander are lost. And uh, I see some eyes sparking up there. So, um, But we are lost in the sense if we're caught by the ego and the senses. But our wandering, if it's guided in that divine flow, we are not lost, no matter what happens in life, no matter what experiences we have that are devastating, catastrophic, just overwhelming to us. We may seem that we're wandering we are lost, but if we're always holding the sweetness of that touch and the power of that magnetism, we will never be lost, even if it seems that way. But, you know, when we tune into the divine and feel that power, we will go into it more deeply. But the irony is, we have to start from deep in that experience and, and refine it and deepen it. You know, Om is an interesting experience, a vibration. And when we're chanting Om, that really isn't Om, and yet it is very real that it's Om. But you know, there's two spellings of Om that we use, O-M and A-U-M. And I think you're all probably aware why that's the case, that OM is more the vocalization of the sound so we get it closer to what it can be. And then the spelling of AUM reflects the, the vibration and creation of what happens, that the first letter and the first part of the sound is Brahma, that creative force. The second letter and that sustaining force is Vishnu, sustaining the energy in creation. And that M and that last part of the sound is the dissolving part of Shiva. And actually, there is a tradition that, of course, that's how you chant it, that the, the beginning of the chant of Om is more in the back of the throat and it comes through the, the mouth itself, and then the, the lips are closed for the M part. And that M part, there's a, there's a deep tradition, not that we tune into it in the direct way, of humming in yoga. And it comes from that part of Om, that mmm part of it. Um, but in the Vedanta tradition, there's a fourth part of Om. And it's the absolute. It's the essence beyond the expression. And it has a name in Sanskrit called Anagata. It means the absolute, where there isn't the expression of that sound. Now. You know, several times it was mentioned about that the recording of the sun flares sounds like Om, and I listen to it, and it does sound like Om. But even that isn't Om. It's just an expression of Om. Isn't that interesting? It's a deeper, more refined part of it. And so what we're doing when we're working with Om, we're attuning, we're aligning, we're merging.
And so there's the tradition of mantra yoga, and the most prevalent mantra in mantra yoga taught as a meditation technique is Om, to repeat Om as a mantra. That isn't the tradition that we have from our path, from Yogananda. The tradition we have is Laya Yoga, which is the absorption into Om. It's a deeper experience of using the sound and then becoming the sound. We're absorbed in the presence of Om. And it may be the sounds of the chakras, uh, or it may be the powerful eminence of Om itself. But that's that part that's beyond the expression. And of course, from one perspective, it feels that God is hiding from us. But it's only because we haven't done our part of opening up to that experience. We haven't really lived that experience. And we tend to go horizontal, kind of sideways sometimes on the spiritual path. I read this cartoon recently, a delightful cartoon, where this manager is sitting at his desk and he's got a report open in front of him. And he's got his employee standing in front of him. And he's looking at this and he says, this is gobbledygooked. I asked for mumbo jumbo. Well, for those that aren't familiar with the weird English language, they're both similar words for something being incomprehensible or unintelligible. And so, you know, and that's what happens in the world of duality is that uh, we say, well, it's not working this way, but I can do this instead. And instead of gobbledygook, I can do mumbo jumbo. And we're just moving around in this way that isn't really going to where we want to be. And so what we want to go beyond is that, that expression that captures us, but still live in the expression. And that's why it just seems challenging a lot of the time, because we're not saying life is no good, life is a hazard zone. Well, it appears like that frequently, obviously, but it's that, no, where's our orientation? Where are we coming from? If we're coming from our center, then we'll feel more alive in the expression as well. And we know that, obviously, from our own experience. We know that the senses are enlivened, but they're no longer controlling us. That the religion that we're really here with, the inner religion, is the reversal of the energy away from the senses into the nervous system, into the astral realm, into the causal realm, and into the omnipresence. That's always there. It's always available to us. But I think for most of us, our karma appears at times and overwhelms us in the experience. But look at it this way, that all of us have gone through periods, perhaps not in this lifetime, but probably in this lifetime, where what's driving us is our ego through our senses. And often we'll seek meaning in our lives through past experiences, the memory of what has happened. And we're always looking to get something more exciting, more extreme, to give us that sense of something happening in our lives, that it's not boring. But as we refine ourselves, as we grow in that attunement, what happens, instead of looking to the past so much, we're more mindful, we're more in the moment, We're bringing consciousness into life's experiences. 
It's not that there's spirituality, but there is my mundane life. That being mindful draws us into the experience of being alive in the moment. But there's a further refinement that comes as we deepen that. Because in that mindfulness, we start to detach more from being caught by the experiences, even if the experiences continue to happen. But that refinement further is that divine remembrance, where we're just in the experience of the divine. It isn't us having the experience. It isn't as if the experience is there. That merging effect, that experience becomes one completely for us. In the autobiography of a yogi, you know, in the beginning of the book, Yogananda as Mukunda goes through various experiences and he visits a lot of the saints, as we recall. And one of the, the saints he visited is Madri Badri Mahashai, the levitating saint. And you remember the story probably, but um, this is a saint that Mukunda visits frequently because he's just feeling that overwhelming aura of God's presence in Badri Mahashai. And at one point, they're meditating together. And Badri Mahashai says to Mukunda, sitting in meditation, I see you often go into the inner silence, but have you developed Anubhava? And Anubhava is a Sanskrit word for the actual perception of God. But interesting, isn't it? That, and Master was just, you know, obviously relating a story that we could all relate to. I'm sure he was in uh, Nirbhi Kalpa Samadhi at the time, but it, it's a story to refresh us, to gain us the possibilities. So it's not enough just to meditate so much uh, in and of itself. Although, I mean, look at, put it in perspective. If we're having a real bad day, uh, a bad hair day as well, and things really aren't going the way that we expected them to go, and we're stressed out, life has caught us in this whirlwind of stress and tension, just sitting for a moment and saying, Om Tat Sat is going to be a real benefit, believe me. So it's all relative. But the danger is that we become passive as we meditate and take more time, refine the techniques, is that it's, it's more than just being in that inner peace, in that inner silence. It's really being in God. And that's why if we can always, not just for meditation, but especially for meditation, bring that devotion of openness, bring that sincerity of offering, bring that sense that we're not separate, I am one with thee, not from the ego, but from the soul quality that's always calling. I am one with thee, Lord. Together, let us explore this life together. So I invite all of you, as we end this Spiritually New Week, to develop Anubhava. Every day, hearken to it and be in that actual perception of your true nature of being in God. Thank you.